Morning, everyone. Thank you, Claire. That was very appropriate, actually. It's a good setup. Um, last week, I preached on the chapter previous to this one. And there we saw a number of different events where Jesus was chipping away at the popular understanding of how one should live for God. And to be fair, he wasn't really chipping away at it at all. He was he's really taking an, an axe to it. But I don't think his opponents realized that at the time. They knew he was a problem, but they didn't realize he was going to turn everything on its head, which he did. At that time, you see, the religious leaders of the day um, had turned following God into a very legalistic lifestyle, a big, long list of rules. And of course, there are still things that God wants us to do, for sure. But don't get me wrong, but the religious leaders had made following the law of God into something that could be done. Uh, So they they actually lowered the standards um, in some ways because they thought, yes, it's possible to be perfectly obedient to God. And they thought that the way to do it was to, make, was to take the existing laws of God and break each one down into smaller rules that had to be meticulously kept. I think they made life boring, actually, on top of everything else. Out of this context, then, there arose a way of life where it was clear who was righteous and who was not. If you followed all the rules that the rabbis had laid down, one could be righteous. And if you didn't, you were a sinner. And Jesus, like I said, he takes a hatchet to this way of thinking. He undermined both the idea that there was only two kinds of people, sinners and righteous. Because he only saw sinners. He only saw people who needed his help. He also showed them that some of their so-called rules actually didn't help people follow God at all. In fact, they only ended up placing even more of a burden on people. Their rules said, don't go near sinners. But how can you love people if you don't go near them? And how can you see your own need for God if you think sin is only something that others do? All in all, then, the religious leaders of Jesus' time had cheapened the riches of God's law, law, and it was a law that they used to justify their own law-breaking. And in the end, they'd only succeeded in creating a world where they were on top and those who did not correspond to what they thought was righteous were on the bottom. So they had to go. And in this world, the foundation was obedience to the law. That was their foundation. And more pointedly to their version of the law as well. And Jesus was going to come and he was going to give a new foundation. And he was going to show them the proper version of the law. He was going to teach them right. That's where this sermon on the mount comes in today. It shows us a new law and a new foundation. So let's look at it. Um, First thing he does, we didn't read this bit out, but the first thing he does is he picks his top 12. He has a heap of followers. We don't know how much, but he has a lot of followers. And he picks 12 out of them, calls them apostles, which means sent ones. These are the ones who will take his message out further than him. He will teach them and they will go. And by choosing 12, he does something that, is, uh, that has a bit of symbolism to it. 
there was 12 sons of Jacob from whom came what we know as the nation of Israel. They were the people of God, but Jesus is starting a new people of God, the church. So he starts off with 12 as well. And this, brothers and sisters, this is the beginning of the church. The greatest project ever to be undertaken in history. It has its beginning this night on the mountain. And just as Moses came down from the mountain after spending time with God to give them the Ten Commandments and the rest of God's law, Jesus also spends the night up on the mountain and comes down the next day to the people to give them the new law. I heard a minister once talking about how he was on a plane and he was sitting alongside this guy and they were talking and the, the guy finds out that he's a minister and uh, he said to him, you know, I like that Jesus fella, but he had one problem. I was like, oh yeah, what was that? Well, he had a great message, but he needed better advertising. So there's hardly any Christians these days. And uh, the minister, to his credit, uh, said, well, you know, it's Monday morning. And he said, yes. Well, what was yesterday? Sunday. Yes. Do you know that nearly one third of the world was worshipping Jesus yesterday? Now, it's a minor point, but I, I, don't want to pass, I don't want to walk past it without mentioning it, you know. This development here, what Jesus starts off this time, this is what leads to us being here this morning in Kirkpatrick Memorial, sitting here, well, yeah, sitting here on the side of Newtonards Road, wanting to witness to people about Jesus and encouraging others to live for the glory of God. It all starts here. And he starts off his teaching then with this list of blessings and woes, promises of good and promises of bad. The blessings are for the poor, the hungry, those who weep and those who are persecuted because of Jesus. The woes are for the rich, the well-fed, and those who laugh, and those um, of whom everyone speaks well. Now, there's a lot in there. Jesus is not saying that anyone who laughs is doomed, thankfully. He's not saying everyone who is rich is likewise on their way to hell, nor is he saying that the poor, hungry, and persecuted will be lifted out of poverty hunger and injustice if they start following him. So what is he saying? An enigmatic, enig, enigmatic passage like that can throw up a lot of questions. Well, clearly, he's addressing two types of people. Those who are poor and those who are rich. Everything else flows out of this categorization. The poor are hungry and cry. The rich are well-fed and are having a good time. The question is, is he basically talking about money here, or is it something else? Because if it is money, then most of us here today, probably all of us, are not in a good position. Despite the fact that I know some of us are on meager earnings, some of us, I'm sure, are not in a good state financially, despite all of this, by mere virtue of the fact that we live in the UK, we have more access to funds, services, and shelter than most of the rest of the world. Minimum wage for someone over 25 is 6.50 an hour, so I'm told, and yet a good chunk of the world lives on less than the equivalent of $1 a day. So if Jesus is talking about money, then we're in trouble. Because in comparison to the rest of the world, all of us are rich. Some have said 
that he's talking about money, but it's only those who have gained their riches through unjust means. And so when Jesus addresses the poor, he's talking to those people who have suffered because of this injustice. And of course, Israel at the time was under occupation. The Romans controlled it and taxed it heavily. So that's a possibility. But I'm going to put it to you that he's not talking about money alone or even unjustly gained money to whom certainly these woes applies. But when he mentions poverty and riches, he's talking about a lack or a lack of or a lack or abundance of not just money, but also influence, position and honors. And I'm confident this for two reasons. Firstly, that's what we see in the Gospels. Jesus talks against the rulers, the soldiers, the religious leaders, tax collectors, and wealthy people. And secondly, in his list of blessings, he clearly includes those who are insulted because of following him. So it's not just a financial consideration that he has here. At the end of it all, there's a clear message. If your money or your station in life is what gives you comfort in life, watch out. The picture that we see painted here by Jesus is, of, is one of a person who is, who is lauded. This is the rich guy. He's lauded by all those around him for what they do or for what they have. He's a, a person who enjoys their position in life and enjoys what they have. Well, to that person, Jesus says, don't be confident in yourself. Because in the past, the false prophets were treated the same way. And effectively, he's saying, you're aligning yourself with these people who are not of God. You may think that your money and your position means you are blessed. And the people around you may say the same stuff to you. Oh, yeah, you're great. They say something to the same effect. But Jesus says, don't listen to them. On the flip side, he's giving a message of hope to those who have nothing. Because what he does here, in effect, is he turns the world upside down. Those of you who the world says, you have nothing, you are no one, actually have something more of value than anything in this world. The kingdom of God is theirs. And again, let me be clear, it's not that poverty means you can assume you are saved by God, but instead Jesus is painting a different kind of picture of life. In the kingdom of God, there is a great reversal of values. You're not in the group because of who you are or what you have or what you've done. If you follow Jesus, that is enough. That might seem like cold comfort to those of us who know real poverty or those of us who've worked with the poor and know the the circumstances. But you see, I would say that's a lack of faith because what the Lord offers here is what he offers on every page of the Bible. Grace. Grace for the weak. Grace is for the have-nots of this world. That is the way in which both rich and poor can be true followers of God. Because we who are rich can be blessed as we give up our reliance on money, on prestige, power, and accomplishments. And we can stand alongside our poor brothers and admit that we are truly in need and lay claim to Jesus just as much as they can. Now, you might say, well, Richie, you know, you've just spiritualized a very hard message for the rich. 
or consider this. Giving up your reliance on wealth means that you have to hold on to it very loosely. You might even end up giving away most, if not all of it. And that's not easy. The poor, are, in, in a sense, are actually blessed because they don't have to give up anything to live. They don't have to give up anything to lay hold of the Lord because they have so little already. We do. And as history and personal experience testify again and again, it's not easy to give up the things that, according to Jesus, take his place. Blessed are those who beg could be the best way to sum this up. Because whether you have a lot of money or not, Begging God for all our needs is to be our spiritual disposition throughout life. Next, then, Jesus says something to people that has a few lines in it that are well known. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? And what he's teaching here is, um, is hard very hard. Recently I was told a story that will resonate with a lot of you. A preacher goes down to a church in Tyrone. It's a little Protestant church. It's in a majority Roman Catholic area. And they're thinking about how to reach out to their neighbors with the gospel. And a preacher talks about how they're going to have to start to identify to some degree with the surrounding areas in some new ways if they're going to be able to reach out to them. And it's not a message that's received well. At the end of the service, an elderly man, a long-time member of the congregation, this is a true story, by the way, calls the speaker over to him and asks him to walk out the front door with him. They go out the front door, and he points across the valley to two houses. And he says, do you see that house there? I know, and everybody knows, that the son of the man of that house killed the son of the man of that house. And then he said, there are 160 unsolved murders in the wider area, and they probably never will be solved. And you expect us to identify with these people? No, to his credit... The preacher said, that is exactly what I want you to do. And the old man wasn't satisfied. And I tell you that because it speaks for itself about the extent of what the Lord is calling some of us to do. Because what the Lord is about to tell us here in this passage, what he does tell us in this passage is, is it's completely off the wall according to the standards of the world around us. It's fundamentally different to what the religious leaders were offering back then and definitely different to what the world will tell you to do. But what he tells us to do here is pretty clear. Love your enemies. But although it's hard, it can't be denied, it's impossible if we look to within ourselves for strength and power to do it. What we have to do, according to Jesus, is to consider the mercy of God to look at how he treats sinners and loves them, to look at how he treats us. The person who needs our mercy is just like us when we receive mercy from God, weak and needy, not able to return favors, 
and more often than not is responsible for the mess that they're in. Jesus questions the natural order of things again here. Are we going to do what comes natural to us? To love? To do good? To give only to those who can repay us? Only those who we have a natural affinity for? Only those who have not hurt us? Or are you going to be a part of his church where he's committed to building a group of people who persevere in sharing God's mercy to their enemies just as God showed mercy to us who by nature were his enemies as well? Then Jesus moves on to teaching about judging others. This is probably the most misused part of the Bible in the Western world. Don't judge, people say. Don't judge me. It's in the Bible. Well, yes, it is in the Bible. But it's it's not there alone. There's more to us. Jesus isn't saying you should never criticize or offer assistance or even act wisely with regard to people, which, if you never judge, is what you would have to stop doing. Instead, this passage is talking about two things. Again, he's turning the normal, natural way of the world upside down. On one hand, there's a clear principle of what you give out comes back to you even more so. The way of the world is to take and to keep and to protect us. The way of the kingdom is to give out and get more in return. Now, uh, if you turn on the Christian TV stations, a lot of times you'll see health and wealth preachers use this kind of thinking to tell people that they can be healthy or wealthy if they would only give away more money, usually to them. And there is a sense in which that kind of thinking has undermined this teaching of Christ. But don't let that cloud your head. The chief difference between that kind of thinking and what Jesus is saying here is that Jesus is not asking us to give away so that we will get more. He is telling us that as we live for him, for his glory, and in light of that, refuse to condemn or to judge or to withhold forgiveness or to be stingy, there will be rewards from God. The focus is totally different. One crowd is looking for rewards. The other is looking to please God because of what he has done for them and will get rewards in return. Second half then of this section, he's still talking about judging, but here he wants to look at some practical considerations of it. We live in a community. We see, people see us, we see their faults, they see ours. And Jesus knows, you see, judging is a dangerous game because although we have to do it, the temptation is to focus on other people's sins and completely ignore our own ones. Though it's, uh, this is applicable to all of us. I think this bit is particularly for any of us who are trying to lead others whether in the church or outside of it. The principle at hand is this. Those who are around you will become like you. That's what he's talking about, the the blind guides. So if you're blind and you're leading people who are blind, you ain't going to go nowhere good. You're going in the hole. The question is, what causes blindness? And the answer is pride. Do you criticize others but remain unteachable yourself? That's pride. 
Jesus counsels that if you have a strong desire to fix others, you must first fix yourself. So here's an exercise for you this week. Find someone who knows you well and ask them what would they change about you if they could. If you're married, ask your spouse. If you're not, find someone who will tell you the truth. If you desire to correct others in love, you know, seriously, do it. It's great. I asked herself. I got a good answer. I don't know what to do about it, but... (laughs) You know... You know, do it, like seriously. I, I, asked, I asked an uncle of mine years ago, and he, the answer he gave me still is in my head. It's good. I, I used to live with my uncle. If you desire to correct others in love, if you want to be someone who reproduces Christ in others as he was in you, then you must first be humbled. This is a rule for life. And again, it's typical of what I was saying earlier. It's not a rule that can be delineated point by point. There are not ten steps to guaranteed humility. It takes prayer, the counsel of friends, allowing our hearts to be searched by God's word. But for those who are granted it, granted it, there is the joy of being able to lead others as they seek to become more like Christ. And let me tell you from the other side of the fence, it's much easier to hear correction from someone who is humble than someone who isn't, even if they're right. You know, because you, you, you trust the person who says something to you and you know that they've been through it. You know they've taken the plank out of their own eye. The second to last part then teaches us about what is essentially how to spot if you are doing right by him, him being Jesus, if you're living a good life. Now, the interesting thing here is that in some ways, this bit is fairly easy to understand. You know, he's saying, by their fruit shall you know what kind of tree it is. The point's simple enough. If you want to see if a person is a good person or not, look at their fruit. However, what's interesting, and what was new to me, actually, this time around, is that Jesus focuses not on what they do or how they behave, which, considering everything he has said thus far, you would expect them to do, but instead he focuses on what they say. You see that? It's your speech that gives you away. For it's your speech that reveals your heart. Now, to be honest, I, I don't know what to do with that. The only thing I'd say is don't take your speech when you're at your worst as indicative of your true state. We all know, or we know that all of us, when under pressure and we can see our lack of faith, all the bad stuff comes out, shouting and roaring, cursing, blinding, swearing, the whole lot. But what does your conversation reveal about you when you're doing fine? When things are good, do you speak well of your enemies? Do you refrain from criticizing or condemning when the sun is shining? Jesus doesn't say anything else here. He just leaves that hanging in the air. And so will I. And so we come to the last part Another famous story. Claire's mentioned it already a few times. And I've become convinced it's a story upon which all this chapter actually hangs on. You see, last week, I talked to you about why we should trust him. You know, basically, look at the cross. This is where we see the love of God displayed. He dies for us. He endures separation from the Father for us. 
He suffers for us and all of that because of us, right? But today, the question is not why should we trust him. Today, the question is how are we going to do this? Love enemies. Be willing to, to, to give up the money. The only way that any of this is plausible and doable is if Jesus is our foundation. And the parable that he teach, says teaches two things. First, yes, if you listen to Jesus and put his words into practice, when the storms of life come, you will not be shaken. But there's another more important thing that Jesus is saying here, and Claire's already got at it. Notice in verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And then he goes on, he says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. The focus of this parable, the foundation of rock that he is a metaphor that he's drawn his attention to, sorry, is not just obedience to his words, it's also making him our Lord and other things not our Lord. When you come to him and call him Lord, Lord, why does your life not reflect all these things? In fact, the whole parable is told to answer his question in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I say? In other words, if you want the unshaken life, you have to call him Lord. This has to be our foundation. There's no other way of following him. If he is not your Lord, then when someone does something in front of you that is clearly wrong, but it's something you also struggle with, you will not be able to resist the urge to correct them. If he is not your Lord, then when the day comes that you are mocked or even hurt because of your faith in Jesus, then you, you will not be able to rejoice. You won't be able to turn the other cheek. If he's not your Lord, then when your loved one is murdered, you will not be able to forgive your enemies. But for those of us who he is the Lord, who are willing to be judged by him, who are willing to admit that we need him, for those, there is a firm foundation that is unshakable. And grace, 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 grace from the Spirit to enable us to love the unlovable, to be merciful to those who hurt us, and to find joy even when life is hard but only if the Lord is your foundation. All other foundations means you won't be able to resist hoarding your wealth, hating your enemies, etc., etc. So, if he's not your foundation, woe to you. And if he is, blessed you are. It's a hard blessing, but it's still a blessing. And one day, there'll be none of this rubbish, just joy. That's it. Oh, yes, I'm still here.